0: Charlie Crawford podcast part two on Charlie Crawford. So this next 2005 to 2023 era within that around 20 20 year period, I want to talk about now making a career out of rodeoing. The ups and downs, the trial and errors, the things you learn from, the things you build on and where things can go from there. 2005 I make my first NFR as we talked in our previous podcast that was how I got my start where I came from what my passion when I found my passion the trials and tribulations the sacrifices all the things that got me to where I made my first NFR in 2005 and so this first NFR was amazing. Not financially, but just the experience. I never thought I would probably make it more than maybe a couple of times when I was thinking about making the NFR, what my goals were. Maybe I make it enough times or maybe I'm able to buy a place and become a horse trainer, a horseshoer, get married, have some kids, live out my life that way my expectations of my future at that point in time was not very high that was kind of the knowledge that I knew of that was kind of that era where everybody went and so that was where my imagination took me to where I think that was where I thought I could probably go to so I make my first NFR and it was glorious um I remember driving out there I remember getting there seeing the lights um when I first pulled into the NFR, you know, you got to remember, I was still shoeing horses at this time, shoeing people's horses down the road. You know, I had clients like Clay O'Brien Cooper and Jake Barnes, the guys like that, that when they needed a horse shot, they would come find me. You know, a lot of the cowboys knew when they blew a shoe, that's when they'd come find me. Well, I'm wanting to take this week off, obviously. I'm wanting to be a NFR cowboy. And so I... Get to the NFR for the first time, and sure enough, I hadn't even unloaded my horses. Cody Ole comes and tracks me down. Hey, Chuck, I need a horse shot. I'm like, come on, Cody. This is my first NFR. Like, I want to, I want to enjoy this. I want to take the week off of shoeing. I want to be an NFR cowboy, not a farrier. Come on, man. I need. I really need him shod bad. I, I didn't get him done before I left. And I was getting $50 back then to shoe a horse. And he says, Chuck, I'll give you 100 bucks." Well, I don't turn down $100 at this point, even at the NFR. <laughs> and I told him, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. But let me at least get my horses unloaded. But there's one thing I got to do first. So I get my horses unloaded. And there was something that I wanted to do. I always told myself and my best friend, Danny, that if I make the NFR, I'm going to do a dirt angel in the head box. Because that's how much that meant to me. As a little kid, I remember dreaming about doing that, and I'm like, I've got to make sure the little guy inside of me makes sure he gets his wishes. And so I took off in my sh- uh, shirt, T-shirt, uh, my work boots to go shoe a horse, and my unstarched pants. And I walk down there, and I go find the Thomas and Mac, and I just go look at it. Looks so much different. You know, the lights weren't on. There was people still putting up banners. They were getting the dirt in there, getting it leveled out. It looked way different in person than it did on TV. And I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So I walked in there, and I walked in the head box and just looking at it, just, just absorbing everything. I dropped right in the middle of that thing and left it on my back and started doing me a big dirt angel right there in the head box. And I think I remember hearing somebody in the background that was putting up banners going, Hey, I think there's somebody down there having a seizure. (laughs) And I didn't care. I was like, Oh, this is it. This is it. I made it. I finally made it. And of course I got up after that and kind of moved on that way before anyone called the ambulance. (laughs) But I did, I wanted to make sure that I appreciated how far I got. Um, That was something that I dreamt about and sacrificed a lot to get to, and I wanted to enjoy it. And it's one of those things, too, to where before that time, everyone wants to feel like they made it on their own. You don't make it on your own. I didn't make it on my own. It was my choice to put the time and effort into it. But if it wasn't for my mom and dad and my stepmom, I would have never been there. My dad inspiring me with horsemanship to rope. He put me around all that. My mom that helped me so much financially, helping me get my first truck, helping me out whenever I was in a bind, um, pulling me out of financial debts that I, you know, from rodeo. And she helped me out a lot from that. My stepmom that videoed me in every place I ever went. And so there's a lot of thanks that that uh, that is required to, to get you to that first NFR, the Crosley family in Hermiston you know Shane was like my second dad when I got out of school he he taught me he taught me grace on what it was like to to be to be able to make mistakes and it's not that big a deal and you learn from them and you build on uh the Gibbs family from Hermiston you know they were another family that I had met that uh, met their daughter and was dating on and off up till that point and just the grace that they had showed me and the 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 way it um was able to have another place to, to stay as well and, and rope and, and feel like family and, you know, my best friend Danny had got me to that point. That was my my go to guy when things went south and Steve and Liz O'Dell with Team Equine was my first sponsor that believed in me even before I made it. And so here I am at the NFR and oh, I remember I remember the the grand entry Oh, it was just phenomenal just to pack the to be behind the Oregon flag and go across the the packed stadium of eighteen thousand people for the very first time and the crowd and the smoke pyro smoke that's over the the you couldn't even hardly see the second section from the pyro smoke that was you know in the arena and uh you just those are things you don't forget those are the things when you had those struggles you remember them too. I believe both of them burn your soul. I believe when things go south and things sting hard, like that high call situation and you missed, they burn in your soul. You don't forget them. But another thing you don't forget is when you get past them and you triumph over those mishaps. And then you remember like, what you learned when you missed in that high call situation when you're riding at them at NFR for the very first time, man, it was it was so fulfilling. It was it was it it filled my heart. It filled my soul. Now my first NFR wasn't all just sunshine and rainbows. Um, I think I remember. I think I turned every steer, which was good. But I, I, I dang sure, um, I dang sure had some some things to work on for sure. It was way faster than I thought. Um, I didn't know what horses to ride. I didn't know how to utilize the the degrees of the arena on how short they were. You know, your arena's short. It's very narrow. I was still struggling with angles to be able to handle my steer and not get in the fence. Uh, Running over a lot of myself just on the fact that I wasn't, uh, I didn't have enough reps. I didn't have enough experience in there but man, it was cool. I remember, I think I blew up two or three rent-a-cars, I think, that year, because I didn't think I'd ever come back, and so I remember I would gas it every time I, a green, a red light would turn green, and then every time a stop sign or a red light would come, I just pulled the brake I got to where I found a, a little spot outside the UNLV place where they had these big speed bumps that I call launching pads, and I'd go jump them things, and I was just like, I, I want to experience everything. I want to make sure that if this is the last time I ever make it, that I remembered it. And I did. I, I made it memorable. It was so much fun. So much fun. Um, and so, of course, you experience that, you want to go back. And so, um, one of the, the things that uh, leading up to that point was, I was a little wilder back then. Um Girls were something that I always chased. Um, I always enjoyed that <laughs> part of um, being a cowboy. You know, how I was raised in that era was loving, and drinking, and fighting and cowboys. Looking back at it now, what an immature um, way to look at things. But that, that was how I looked at things. And earlier that year, I had found out that um, I had a daughter. And her name was Cadence. And found out she was mine. And wasn't sure how to deal with it. Um, kind of the same repeat of something my dad had did. And that's how I came about. Now, was I disappointed that I followed in my dad's footsteps? Absolutely. Um, very disappointed myself. Very very uh confused, very scared young kid um, and i didn't I didn't really know what to do and so I didn't really act on it when I found out she was mine. I didn't know what to do and so I continued to keep rodeoing. on. I had been dating a girl on and off um, throughout that and from up there in Oregon and Um, you know, found myself in a lot of drama. And I didn't know how to get myself out of the drama. It's kind of one of those situations and times and periods of my life to where I didn't like the drama, but I really wasn't doing nothing to get myself out of the drama. I was still trying to figure out who I was. I was finding out I didn't love who I was because of the choices that I had made. I had found out that... I don't know if I was quite connected to God spiritually as I should have been. I think I was living up to the love and drink and fight and cowboy code. Obviously way more than I was with God. But each, each trial kept bringing me closer to him. And so after that 2005, it was as glorious as making the NFR, but I was finding out that, man, I, my life was a little bit out of control. It was out of balance. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who I was. I didn't like who I was becoming as I was becoming more successful in the arena. And so I kept trying to think, man, how am I going to change my path? How am I going to change my life? You know, I'm in in my upper 20s now. And one of the things my dad had always talked about was don't let girls um, deflect you from being who you want to be. So I was more of girls were kind of on the side, but like my career was first. My career was first. I was not going to let them derail me. Well, obviously I was kind of right in the fact of, um, you know, I hadn't gotten married at that point, but my choices were still derailing me personally. So I'm trying to figure out how do I change my life? How How do I become, I can hear God's voice a lot louder now. And so in 2006, um, I'm still wanting to be a rodeo cowboy. I'm, I'm still making sure that, like, all right, I want to I continue to keep roping. I'm getting good at it. I've got a very good horse herd put together at this point. I'm placing at the jackpots very well. I'm mounted really well. I'm starting to, I'm starting to pick up sponsors. This is no time to quit. So I'm just going to have to figure out who I am along the way. So in 2006, I'm roping as good as I've ever roped, better than I've ever roped in my life. I'm winning good. I'm starting to get noticed. I start picking up the ranks of guys like Alan Bach. So Alan decides that spring that he was looking for another partner, and I thought that that might be something that I I should pursue. It was a natural instinct for me that I felt like to get better, you've got to get around the people that are better than you i was not scared of that i didn't talk much around it because i didn't want anyone to know how much i didn't know i was still insecure but i also still had that thirst for knowledge i still also wanted to be around people better than me because that was the only way i was going to get better and so as i started roping with big al i was also still shoeing on the side i was still holding clients i was still roping And man, I was just not, I was not able to do both. And he kind of sat me down one time and and said, you know what, Charlie, you rope good enough. But if you're going to try to do both, you're not going to rope as good as the guys that are doing this full time. So he really tried to help shape me into the mold of what it's like to practice like this is a career, to rope like this is a career. So we roped, we got up early. We roped when the sun came up. We had horses saddled. We took off the, and this is a springtime in Texas when it gets really hot. And we'd rope again in the evenings when it got cold. We'd sleep during the day when it got hot and then we'd rope in the mornings early and we'd rope in the afternoons until, until it got dark. And he showed me what it was like to, to be all in, to turn this into a, a career. And... I soaked it up like a, like a dry sponge. And every rodeo we went to, we read the Bible. He really started, he really helped me personally. He, he took away a lot of the myths of what God stands for, what Jesus Christ stands for. I always told everyone after I learned that about Big Al and, and what he had taught me, it was, it was amazing how well the devil can mark it. That devil is a great marketer. His marketing degree is probably better than anybody's, anybody's. Because what I think the devil does a great job of is he shows you what's cool. Well, what's always cool ain't always right. The love and drink and fight and cowboy phase that I went through, that I was instilled, that was that era of rodeo. Big Al brought another way of life to rodeo. He started showing people what Jesus Christ was about. He decoded the myths. You know, Jesus is love. Jesus is compassion. Jesus is patient. Um, All the things that I think I wasn't at the time. You know, you look at the fruit of the Spirit. That really told me what Jesus and God was about. Well, I was kind of the opposite at that time. I got angry. I was impatient. Um, I held grudges. Um, I think I, I leaned to alcohol as a crutch. Um, girls were more of a of a fulfilling way for me to find love, but that was lust, didn't know the difference. And so it really did kind of start like, I started finding out a little bit more of who I was when I roped with Big Al. And one thing that I would say too for all the young rodeo kids coming up he really taught me how to treat myself, and I still remember this conversation even as to today when him and I were roping and i would, we were first started going to some rodeos, man, I was really hard on myself, really hard on myself when I would miss one more i would i would I would browbeat me pretty good, and I would do it to where everyone could hear it, like, man, I can't believe I did that that was so dumb, just really talk bad about myself and I remember Big Al come up to me and he goes, man, you sure are hard on yourself. You know, this is my dad talk. You know, my dad would be real hard on me. So I'm, of course, now I'm hard on myself. And he said, man, you sure are hard on yourself. I said, well, I've got to be. You know, this is what's got me here. You know, I had to be hard on myself. I'm not going to be. Who's going to be? Big Al was like, well, that's, that's one way to look at it. But he said, what about your best friends out here? Who are your, some of your best friends? So I started naming off a few of them. And, and he said, so what if those guys missed how you just missed? Would you talk to them how you just talk to yourself? And I said, no way. No way. No, I would never think that those guys would ever miss another steer like that. Like, I know that they would not. Like, I have so much confidence in them. He says, well, what would you tell them? And so I told him you know, in an encouraging way, you know, it, it's gonna be okay, you know. You're not gonna do that again, and all the things that I would tell, you know, your, what we would tell our best friend. And he said, "Well, man, I wonder what would happen if you talk to yourself like that, like you're your own best friend." That right there struck me pretty, pretty hard. Never in my life did I ever think about that. I was almost, at that point in time, my own worst enemy. And I had no idea until Alan Bach brought that in front of me. He says, you know what? It'd probably be good if you treated yourself like your best friend because you are are living with yourself every day. (laughs) That right there really struck me. Never thought about that. Now, don't get me wrong. It didn't change like that. But it started every time I got hard on myself, I really tried to remember what he had told me at that time. And so I, I really, I, that's when I really wanted to start changing my life. And I gave my life up to Christ in 2006. I got baptized. Big Al baptized me in his water trough in Millsap, Texas, before him and I left for Reno to go rodeo in that summer. And we're reading the Bible, and I'm trying to change my life. I'm trying to. I want. I want to be. I want to be who I know I can be. And so, I uh, I started changing my life. My horse herd was good. I was winning. I was learning how to do um, how to rodeo. He was showing me a lot of the ropes. I quit shoeing as much. I only did it you know here and there. But I was gonna. I was going to start making myself a career out of rodeoing, and I was going to change my life and, and go to church and read the Bible more and started started to change my life. And at that time, I thought, you know what? And To quit um, putting girls um, as a priority, I'm going to settle down. I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to get married. So I got married in 2006, and... Where I believe I went wrong was I gave my life to Christ, but I think rodeo was still number one. I tell you, rodeo still was number one. That was my false idol, as you would say in the Bible. I was trying to change my life with, with God, but rodeo still had my soul. I still gave rodeo, it was number one. And when I got married that was one of the things i had said was i'm going to get married but this is number 1 i am not sacrificing my career like this is number 1 you know i was so scared that and selfish that i didn't want to lose what was my goal my whole life and put anything else first above that so i was still in the learning processes of how god works now i i did give my life to christ but i still I still wasn't there. I still wasn't um, putting him first, even though I thought I was. I just didn't really know it at the time. And so I've turned it into a career. I make my NFR the second time. Um, I had watched a lot of rodeo careers that I feel like their castle was built on sand and lived off credit cards and debt. And when they would win, they would just buy things they didn't need. So I was very, very leery about that. And so I didn't buy anything until I had cash. That was a security blanket for me. And so when I made my first NFR, I bought land. I wanted to make sure that I had something that was gonna be mine and no one else could take it from me. And so after my first NFR, the money I made, I bought land in Llano, Texas. And I was still living with Tyler Magnus at the time. Next year, I was wrote with Big Al, staying up there with him quite a bit. I was still living in my trailer and still rodeoing for a living. And I uh, made the NFR again in 2006. And after that, I bought a barn and I bought an arena. I just kind of like, a lot like Johnny Cash. I built it one piece at a time, but I wasn't in debt. I didn't know the bank, nothing, and... I just wanted to make sure when I paid for things, it was mine. And I had a rig that was paid for. I had a truck that was paid for. And that's how I started slowly developing horses. I started building my herd that way. I started by 2007. Now I feel like my career's taken off. I feel like I've got the right horses. And I'm wanting to learn how to do more lessons and things like that and schools and clinics to develop more money. One of the things, too, that you can look back at a lot of people's careers, it seems like there's a kind of a stunted growth part in your career when you start doing other things outside of just what your career is. And I think that's smart to do. But it also takes away from sometimes where you're at in your career. And when you take away time in the arena to help develop other things so that you can build more stuff and make more money, Sometimes it can start taking away a little bit of of what you do for a career. And I've seen it in a lot of rodeo athletes. When they start becoming really good, then they're doing more autograph signings. They're getting pulled away from what made them great more. Um, And then sometimes their career suffers, and then, then they start realizing that, and they get back in the arena. And so that's kind of where I was starting to become a little bit as I was trying to make other things work outside of the arena to where I was able to make more money. My roping was struggling a, a little, not bad, but um, 2007 had a pretty good winter. But one of the things that started kind of derailing me was I was starting to have back issues. That's when my back really started giving me some problems. Um, I had gotten in a car wreck there in Lano. A girl had pulled in front of me, didn't realize she ran the stop sign, see me stop, panicked, and I didn't have enough time to swerve or stop and hit her. And that that jacked my neck up for a little while that I started having back issues after that and um, I had to sit out for a little while not a long term but um, I was it derailed me from the winter I think I tried to go out a little bit in the spring um, it was my back was torn I think I tore some discs in my back if I remember right and had to come back home and and settle down for a little while and let it get get healed back up and get back out there and so I think I started back in, in Reno. And so I'm, I'm trying to rope from behind um, and just kind of struggling a little bit to get uh, some rhythm, some traction, and struggling mentally, struggling with uh, just kind of barely winning enough to kind of stay within that 10,000 mark to where if I'm just, I'm one big hit away from being right there with them. And one of the coolest things, though, that I experienced in 2007. Was what it's like to be on the bubble. Uh, the first year I made the NFR, I had it made real easy by the by the middle of the season. Uh, in two thousand and six, uh, same thing. I think I had the NFR made about the three quarter season. This time now, I'm I'm behind. I get to Pendleton. I think I'm I don't know eight nine 10,000 out of the top fifteen. I believe I was somewhere around the twenty fifth mark in the world standings. And so I'm a little bit, I'm outside the bubble right now. So I don't really have much choice. So I've got a, Pendleton is my last chance to make a big splash where I can get a big hit right here. Because after that, now the last two weeks is just little, little one headers here and there. Well, I win the first round of Pendleton. I come back, make a great run in the second round. I come back, high call. I believe I placed or won the short round. I can't remember. I won the average at Pendleton. This was huge for me. This was a rodeo I'd always dreamt of my whole life. And I, oh, so emotional. I was not crying, just pumped. I was so pumped. I hat whipped my horse across the 50 yard line. I had him bucking and I kept whipping him <laughs> with my hat and oh, I was this was this was a high. This was a career high. This was one of those things right here where like, I'm back. I'm back. I went from 25th, so for say, I think the 14th, with two, leagues, two weeks left of the rodeo season. And so now I'm pumped. I've got momentum. Whew. I'm like, you better watch out now. And so I've got my confidence back, and we hit those last two weeks of rodeo, and, and it was me and Matt Funk battling my good friend, one of my best friends growing up that I used to rope with. Well, now him and I are battling for the 15th spot the last week of rodeo. And I hit seven rodeos in one weekend. And I get to San Bernardino, California, coming from Poway. And he's winning San Bernardino. We had it mathematically figured out. I believe I had to win better than, I think, fifth in order to make the NFR. I think I was three or four hundred out. And I think fifth paid around five, six hundred. So I had to. When I got there, I had to hurry and get there. When I get to San Bernardino, California, they are on the the clown act before the team roping. And so this bubble, I'm telling you, you don't sleep when you're on the bubble. You're nervous. You're excited. You're you're expending all this money, and it's dangerous. You're driving. You got horses sent. You're flying, and it's a it's a bad spot to be in. Um, financially, you know, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, hoping that, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel by making the NFR. And I get to San Bernardino, so the pressure is there. But I'm also not able to really think about the pressure. i got to hurry up and get there. Get My, my horse is already saddled because I came from Poway. I hurry up and get warmed up. I kind of know what i got drawn. I'm like sixth or seventh out. I'm in a good spot. And I come out, I had to be six, eight, or better, I believe. I was six, five. I think I won fourth or fifth made enough money. I made my third straight NFR in the 15th spot by a few hundred bucks. That was pretty cool. That was one of those things where I'd always dreamt about what it'd be like to, to come from behind, to come out there in that bubble and barely make the NFR to experience that. That was one of those things that I would put on my notch of my belt to where that was, that was exciting, nerve wracking, but exciting. And, uh, one of those things I would never, never forget. And so I made the NFR, started feeling like I was making a career out of rodeo and my clinics were, I was starting to do more clinics, uh, making and turning a few horses. And so I decided that I think I was secure enough financially that I took out a loan and put a house on that place in Lano. So now I've got my house, I've got an arena, I've got a barn, i got a place to keep my horses. For the first time, I have a home. Never had that and pretty excited about that and doing more clinics there and kind of doing enough things where it's taken away from my rope in a little bit again and I'm not seeing it but I'm also wanting to make sure that I'm getting security where I've got money that's coming in to where it's not when you're rodeoing for a living you, you're not really sure where the next paycheck's coming and so I'm trying to develop some security financially I started doing a roping up there in Oregon in 2006, and now it's starting to take off. Starting to create a bunch of teams. That's another thing that's helping me financially. Keep my make sure that I had enough money that it was paying my mortgage through that. Through that uh, by now that that's for that roping had taken off. I was doing clinics, but my roping was starting to suffer. Um, my horses were kind of starting to play out. Armadillo was getting a little older. Taz was getting a little bit older. Tejas was getting a little bit older. Um, they were kind of starting to phase out a little bit on me. And so I don't make the NFR in 2008. And that was a tough blow from three consecutive NFRs until not making it. You know, that's where I started struggling a little bit mentally. Um, And uh, I was kind of needing to come back to Texas and have a little bit of a a regroup, I was needing to recharge. I feel like maybe I was needing to probably rebuild on my horses a little bit. And so Tyler Magnus had been riding this horse called Bullseye, and he was kind of green, but he was good. And every time he'd always put me on that horse, I always liked him. He fit me. Um, he was a little stronger mouthed. Uh, something I could pull on. I did really good pulling. I rode so many unbroke horses throughout my career. I was really good at pulling, and he kind of let me pull on him. And he was strong. He scored good. He stayed up good in the corner. He faced really good. And he was green, but he was pretty solid. And so I took out a leap of faith. And I was like, man, I'm going to go ahead and purchase this horse. This is the first time I've really bought a horse, like a big money horse. This was a gamble. But the cool part about it was I had enough other horses I could move around that kind of paid for them. And then that season in 09, I was back. I was starting to place the big jackpots again. I was rodeoing good again. Um, had a new partner, had a kind of a fresh start, and went in some of the big ropings again. And um, Bullseye kind of got me back, got my career back, and got my head back, got my focus back. And so I'm, I'm starting to, to hit my strides again. And 09 was kind of a blow for me in the fact of my dad called and said he had cancer. And we didn't know how long he was going to live. Um, so my career has taken off again. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm getting more structured. Um, I'm trying to, to learn the Bible more. Um, I'm settling down. I'm trying to do right. Um, and my dad calls and said and tells me that, and we didn't know how long he's going to live. And that was hard for me. My dad and I had a rocky relationship, but we had a bond. We had that bond. And, um, I didn't really know what and where to do. And so we called, we started talking a lot more, um, I try to get up there a lot more and see him, and it—it it was one of those things. It—it it, it hit home, and but he didn't know if he had a few months or a few years, and he—he uh, he really did battle up pretty good that year. He—he he took it. He—he uh, he lasted the whole year. Um, he kept. I remember that he—they kept saying that he needed to quit riding horses, and he said, "I'd rather die." He said, "This is what keep me alive." So when he got done with chemo, he he kept raising his horses, and he loved the he loved the lead rope stuff. He loved the the, the training them. He loved putting them in the round pen, and he loved the psychology of horses. And he never stopped, um, and he he kept moving forward. And I started noticing a change in him as well. And I ended up making the NFR that year, and. My career is coming back. I also found another horse when I came, um, before I got to the NFR in 09, horse called Patron. And this one right here was, I'd give some money for him, and but he just had something special. He had some box issues. He was a little wide-eyed. He was very, very kind of bronky. kind of back to me. He kind of reminded me of me. Um, and he was, he was very insecure. He was touchy. He shied away from a lot of things, but man, that sucker had some feel. He had that, he had that indoor feel, that middle game feel where the, the, you know, the summertime, um, and then bullseye was hitting strides and now I'm getting my horse herd built back again. And so oh nine, oh ten, like I'm roping pretty dang good. I'm, uh, I'm placing all the jackpots, starting to win some jackpots, um, having a great year um in 09 though is one of those things to where when when my dad had cancer it really started resonating to me as what my dad had did for me my dad came I came from outside of marriage that was embarrassing for me um I have a daughter that I had not met yet that was embarrassing for me I couldn't take it anymore I wanted to meet my daughter I feel like when my dad had cancer, that that was one of those things I started kind of looking back at my childhood and remembered that he did not care his mistakes. He had a, a son and he was not going to let me just go by the wayside. And that was laying heavy on my heart, that I had a daughter that I had not met and I couldn't take it any longer. You know, there's a lot of words said, you know, between her and her mom and things like that, that... You know, maybe they were moving and this and that and thought it would kind of just, you know, avoid it and this and things. And I was tired of it. I was I was tired of avoiding it. I was tired of me not being me, me being embarrassed and being insecure about it. And you know what? I'm I'm done with that. That's not the man I want to become. And so when I flew up there in 09 to the circuit finals. um, I wanted to meet her. And what was crazy about it was she was going to school up there in Oregon and she was really good friends with Bobby Moat's daughter, Laura, and she had taken to horses she was naturally loved horses naturally, and it was it was crazy because there was just no denying that 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 girl was me in in so many different ways, but I don't know anything about girls, <laughs> and so of course i'm nervous i'm but i'm like i don't care, I don't care if I'm nervous I'm facing this, I am done being that guy. I'm not going to be that guy, and so I had met her, and um it felt like a weight was lifted off of me. That I was no longer um, that guy. That was not. I did not want to be that kind of dad. My dad wasn't that dad to me, and I would not. I don't want to be that dad. But I still don't know what I'm doing. And I flew back home, and I had told my current wife that I had met my my daughter, and I didn't tell no one about it. I just. I was. It was me. I had to do it for me. That created some strife at home. Um, That had created some, that had kind of uncovered some wounds that was going on between me and my wife at the time. Another problem that was going on was the fact that I still was putting rodeo first. And when you put rodeo first and not God, then rodeo's first. It's among everything else. So my, my marriage was starting to dwindle. And a lot of this was my fault. A lot of this was the fact that even though I'm still trying to, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm trying to get a close relationship with Jesus Christ, but I'm still God's first, or God's not first. He's second. Rodeo is still my false idol. And so, 2010, I'm back again, and I mean, I'm having some great success roping. I'm winning the good rodeos. I'm placing all the good jackpots and and doing good. My horse herd's good. I'm 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 roping better than I've ever roped in my life. And winning. Well, my marriage is not not going good. What was crazy though was how good I was still winning, even though personally I was I wasn't doing so good, um, losing weight, um, you know, just was dealing with things that I didn't know how to deal with. And me and Trey Johnson had started becoming very very good friends, and he was my go-to now for when things were out of my control and for me trying to create a a closer relationship with God, he was my, he was my, my go-to man. Um, and so I started going to him and having conversations and I was trying to create, I was trying to fix things that were outside of my control. He started explaining me to how to fix myself. And I was really battling with that as my, as my marriage was going south I look back at it now, but it was, it was one of those things I think that I had to go through in order to find out who I was, um, to find out what path I needed to go through to find out what kind of man I was, um, because I was, I wasn't living in the, in the right way. And this is hard. You know, this is a, a family that I grown very, very close to. And so it was, it was a hard, it was very, very hard, but it was kind of one of those things too that needed that needed to happen. We had grown apart, um, you know. Rodeo can be very glamorous, you know. It can be one of those things where, when you're young kids, that it can be that that dopamine rush. Well, it doesn't take long for that dopamine rush to wear out, especially in a marriage. And it uh, it went south, and so the next year in 2011. I was having a hard time keeping my head in the game. I was I had a really good winter, and that spring, uh, my horses kind of started getting hurt. Uh, Bullseye was having a hard time with his shoulder. Um, Patron was doing pretty good, and summertime started coming around. After Reno, he had colicked, had to get colic surgery, so he was out for the summer, I had purchased another horse that year that was okay, but just not... He was that great third-string horse that you could kind of fill in the blanks with. Uh, Bullseye wasn't just 100% sound, but we're still close. We're still trying to battle it out, but I'm struggling personally. I'm struggling career. It was a hard year. Um, Ended up finishing uh, just inside the top 20 and wasn't able to pull it off at the end, and so... As things are going south from 2010, I, st- I moved in with Chad Masters. I went and stayed with him before I had um, I had uh, gone to the NFR. I had to get my head in the game, so I moved in with Chad Masters in 2010 and moved up to Lightpan, which was close to Stevenville. And I was roping really good, but I was struggling. He was just Chad was just a guy right there,' was one of the best guys that I've ever met. Chad Masters is going to be one of those guys that you stay friends with after rodeo for life. He is, he might seem real nice on the outside and you're wondering, I wonder if that guy's as nice as he is really as he leads. He is him and his whole family. They took me in. They helped me out. They, they give me a place to live. They let me do schools there. He helped me get me back on my feet. And so I started really loving Stephen Bill. And, I uh, got to the finals in 2010. Well, him and Jackie were talking and they were kind of um, seeing each other a little bit and stuff. And I had heard about this Jackie Crawford or Jackie Hobbs, excuse me. I'd heard about Jackie Hobbs. I never met her. And Chad is like, "Yeah, I've been talking to her, man, this girl seems really, really cool. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool and stuff. And, and uh, we're just talking about it and we get to the NFR. Well, I had, been partying a little bit, and I'd come out of the club with some of my buddies, and, and I see Chad out there talking to this girl outside one of these clubs, and I come over there, well, I, I think I'm going to embarrass him, and he looks at me, and he's like, no, no, don't, don't do it, so of course, that just like, that tells me to do it, <laughs> and so I throw my arm around this girl and say, hey, baby, how you doing, and I'm Charlie Crawford, I just wanted to let you know, there's this little guy right here, if he ain't quite doing it for you, you know, something stupid like that, you know, want to let you know who I was I was trying to embarrass Chad oh boy did that thing swing south and just hit me right smack dab in the head she goes well it's nice to meet you Charlie Crawford I'm Jackie Hobbs I had never seen this girl outside of the rodeo world I've never seen her outside of a cowboy hat this girl was as classy and pretty as anything I'd I'd met but at the time I thought it was just some buckle bunny Chad was chasing I had forgotten they were kind of talking to each other a little bit well I didn't know that was her yeah, that one was good. That was a good one, Chuck. Really good first impression. Yeah, that's tight. That was really good. So I'm like, oh, I don't know how to recover from this. I literally was just stopped in my tracks. <laughs> I, I'm i not even really sure what I said after that. Um, so Chad's laughing his ass off. He's thinking this is the funniest thing ever. When I'm trying to embarrass him, it just totally boomeranged back to me. And so I'm not even sure how I finished the conversation. I think it was more like, nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Charlie. Uh, no, no idea that was you. Uh, I'm going to go now. And I think I remember walking out, and I left there, and I was like, too many Christmas. Everything I've heard about Jackie Hobbs at this point in time was nothing but class. And so, of course, I got my head in my hands. I'm like, boy, that was that was real smart. Good job. Um you know, disrespect one of the ladies of the of the industry. So I don't give it much thought. Well, every time between 2010 up to then, every time I'd see her, I'm like, Hi, Miss Jackie. I'm Charlie. I just want to let you know that I'm not that guy, I, but I apologize for my actions. I was trying to embarrass Chad, and uh, she thought it was funny. She thought it was hilarious. And so throughout this 2010, 2011 era, kind of we we had kind of become buds and and people we kind of talked to i was the embarrassing guy that you know or the the dumbass that kind of embarrassed him in front of her and so it was, we kind of had that little uh punch i guess right there that inside joke amongst each other and so as i'm i'm struggling with my career in 11 and uh going through a divorce had to sell a horse had to sell that buckskin horse and so i called her later that year i think and 2011 12 something like that and wanted to see if if she wouldn't mind um selling that horse for me that I, I had to sell him. and she calls me i think i make the nfr again in 2012 and she calls me and um i uh i called her and i want to see if she wanted to ride this horse and she's like well i tell you what, i'll ride him at the world series finals and as long as I don't have to pay you anything in commission if I win the whole thing, and we'll just trade it out for the fact that uh, if I sell them we won't we'll just trade out commission That sounds more than more than great to me and so we kind of slowly started developing a relationship that way and um not really thinking much of it and to to go back to two thousand and ten um one of the things that might to back to my relationship with my dad and, and, and my daughter a little bit, is I started spending more time with them and trying to get my life back on track. And so my dad is still alive in 2010, and he's actually doing pretty good. He's, ex, he's, he's overcoming all the doctor's expectations. And we're getting closer in our relationship, and I started noticing he quit cussing, he quit chewing, he wasn't drinking him and i's relationship was getting better he was going to church quite a bit and i remember in 2010 he had called and asked me and he says hey i've seen where you had made the short round at uh at pendleton and this is kind of how my dad my dad and i's, i his humor kind of how it fit he he says to me oh that's great i'm glad you made the short round over there at at at, at pendleton i'm gonna come up there and watch Oh great! I, I can't wait to see you. This. And just small talk, and he was getting excited about you know me doing good and going to the NFR and having a good year. And he knew I'd been struggling with some other things, and um, but he had noticed though how I was trying to change my life. I was really trying hard, and obviously I'm, I'm learning. And he calls and tells me and says, "Hey, you think are you leaving after the short round at Pendleton?" I said, no, I'm, I mean, I could, I could stay a few extra days. I'm not just leaving right off the bat. I said, what, what do you got? Oh, great, great, great. He says, well, I'm, I'm going to go to church on Sunday after the short round at Pendleton back home. I'm thinking about getting baptized. I said, really? Well, that's, that's great. He said, well, I thought, you know, if you're not doing anything, <laughs> maybe, you could, maybe you could come. Dad, I'm there. Absolutely. I'll be there. Oh, great, great, great. That's, that's great, that's great. So that's kind of my dad's way of you know, throwing some humor in and, and asking. And, and then he comes back and he goes, well, you know, while you're there, I got to thinking. He says, I, I like how you've changed your life and, and where you're going with things, but I'm still not really sure about these pastors. And while you're there, seems how you're already there, would you mind baptizing me? I said, Dad, you want me to baptize you? He said, Well, if you're gonna be there. <laughs> I said, Dad, I'd love to baptize you. Absolutely, I'll be there. Oh, great, great, great. All right, well, I can't wait to see you. So, was in the meantime, I'm talking with Trey Johnson and telling him about the story, and he's excited, and he's telling me all the things I need to do, and he's excited where I'm going with my with my life and my journey and things like that, and um, I get deep there to to Redmond or Terrebonne Oregon and we're going to church and dad's getting ready for after the sermon where they do the baptizing and he gets in his swim trunks and his white t-shirt if I remembered right and he gets in the tub and and this is just one of those things you had to know my dad and his humor and the pastor had me grab his nose and put my right hand up underneath of his of his back of his shoulders and he started blessing him talked about the Son, the Holy Ghost and I started to, to dip my dad back and down in the into the water and all of a sudden out of nowhere my dad's hands come off of his nose and his right hand comes out of the water and he grabs the side of the tub with both hands and has a death grip on both sides of this tub and he comes back up and he looks me dead in the eye he says son I know we've had some beef in the past but this is no time to get even in <laughs> his humor. He had that whole congregation just in tears laughing. And that was, that was the humor that he had, he, he had brought to the table and, and one of those things that I'll, I'll never forget. And in 2010, I, had, I baptized my dad. That was, uh, that was something that was, I don't know if a lot of sons get to, to say that they got to do with their dad. So that was, a, that was a very high note for me at that point in time of me and my dad and in, that, in our relationship. And we were still struggling a little bit through the 2011-2012 area a little bit. Um, I was also still struggling a little bit personally, but I was, trying to, I was trying to make it to where I learned how to make myself happy. I didn't have to rely on girls. I didn't have to rely on roping. I was working on me in this process.